Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. In 2005, Mike Davis, in his book The Monster at Our Door, having studied the mutations of flu outbreaks, predicted that in the future a new strain of avian flu would unleash a global pandemic that governments, healthcare systems and the pharmaceutical industry would be ill-equipped to handle. In the following episode, we talk to Mike Davis, the prolific author of widely read classics such as City of Quartz, Planet of Slums and Late Victorian Holocausts, about the present and future of global pandemics, the Teutonic shifts in US politics, and the importance of preserving the memory of the movements in 1960s LA, as documented in his latest book, Set the Night on Fire. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on movement radio. I'm Jens Horespa Dimitriou, recording and editing by Stefan Kostadinidis. Mike Davis, welcome to the Archipelago. My pleasure. So, in The Monster at Our Door, in 2005, you predicted that an avian flu pandemic would inevitably arrive. Uh, instead, the most alarming pandemic uh, for almost a century, COVID-19, has come from bats and pangolins, not from poultry. Uh, are we now facing impending doom on multiple fronts? Well, we've entered an age of pandemics, the threat of avian flu is as critical and high as it was back in 2005 when I wrote this uh, book, Monster at the Door. Since then, uh, they've set up an early warning system, a detection system for emergent viruses. And a key part of this research was conducted by a New York nonprofit working with the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. And they studied bats in southwestern China and were amazed to discover that the bats, the Chinese bats alone, were a huge reservoir of different coronavirus species. 
uh, a percentage of which they calculate should could possibly be transmitted uh, to humans, either directly or through the intermediary of uh, other animals, like pangolins, uh, for example. And this was studied only about 10% of the bat species on Earth. The largest group of mammals fly the 1,500 species of bats. So the reservoir of of viruses potentially dangerous to humans uh, is enormous. And our contact with these viruses increases thanks to uh, logging out tropical forests, rainforests, expansion of agriculture, and, of course, the interconnected world we live in allows viruses to travel at the same speed as uh, uh, passenger jets across the, the world. This has been well, well modeled. And the Wuhan Institute warned last year, uh, last spring, well before the outbreak was detected uh, in China, that there was a danger of a new coronavirus outbreak. In this country, we've been preparing for a pandemic uh, for 15 years. There's strategic plans. This has gone over and over again. Uh, play war games with pandemics. The Trump administration absolutely ignored all these preparations and dismantled the key part of the American response to uh, a pandemic. I would like to. I would like us to return to war games and the Trump administration a little bit later. Uh, for now, I'd like to ask you: There has been speculation since the first moment of this pandemic that it would result in the end of globalization. Do you agree with that view? No. <clears throat> um, I mean, obviously, the economic nationalism of the Trump administration uh, has threatened the degree of globalization that now exists. But the fact remains that China is the workshop of the world. China and the associated economies of uh, East Asia and deglobalizing the world, perhaps in the case of, for instance, local manufacture of lifeline medicines and vaccines and so on. But true deglobalization is almost unimaginable. So what's actually happened here is as the Trump administration has retreated from uh, its role in global economic institutions, China has taken its place and become the leading advocate of globalization. If you're in Australia or West Germany, How do you uh, deglobalize when uh, China is your principal uh, uh, market? If you're in Greece, where the Chinese are now uh, major investors in your biggest port, uh, how do you break free, free of this? So what we're seeing, I think, is less deglobalization than a fairly radical change in the role of the United States. Now, of course, 
the United States cannot abandon world markets or withdraw into fortress uh, America because the dollar remains the reserve currency uh, of the whole global economy. And uh, Trump's efforts ended up only affecting uh, uh, trade on, on the margins. Uh, his promises to reindustrialize the United States and create millions of, uh, bring back millions of manufacturing jobs uh, has just been an illusion, a mirage peddled to uh, blue collar workers in the Great Lakes. Could we expect other pandemics such as COVID-19 in the near future? Yes, of course, of course we will. Because capitalist agriculture, forest clearance, and urbanization itself are constantly bringing us into closer contact with these animal reservoirs, whether in birds or in bats or in primates of new viruses, new diseases. But the political, it's crucial to understand the political economy of this. In my book, I cite an example of what I consider to be an exemplary study that appeared in Nature some years ago. And it showed how in West Africa, which is the most rapidly urbanizing area in the world, traditionally urban West Africans have got protein through uh, fish, and the local fishing industry supported uh, several million uh, fishermen. But what happened is the big factory free, uh, fleets from Russia, Spain, China, uh, entered the Gulf of Guinea, and the scientists calculate that they essentially vacuumed up half the fish protein in the Gulf of uh, Guinea which raised fish prices. So poor urban people, deprived of their traditional protein source, had to look elsewhere. At the same time, multinational logging operations were feeding their crews by hiring hunters to basically kill any edible animal on site. Something like 70, 80 different species from primates to snakes to feed their logging crews, this bushmeat, as it's called, uh, soon found a huge market in the cities, opening up a transmission belt between viral reservoirs uh, in rainforests and urban slums. And that's the history of uh, HIV. It's the history of uh, Ebola. But you see global capitalism and multinational firms working at both ends by logging out forests and at the same time by stealing or depleting the traditional source of uh, uh, protein for West African cities. And do you see that during this crisis there are maybe any governments or health organizations that have learned their lesson from this? They are taking a different course and addressing these problems? Well, it is scientific level, and this is about the only silver lining I can see in the current crisis. There's unprecedented cooperation and free exchange of, of information. 
it's now well understood that it's impossible to look at human diseases without looking at animal diseases, without understanding diseases uh, as complex ecologies involving the action of different kinds of human actors. But all this knowledge and all this cooperation is, in a sense, wasted without the implementation of policies to reestablish boundaries between ourselves and nature, to build primary health care in poor, poor countries, and to basically set up an international fire department uh, to put out pandemics when they begin. Now, of course, the World Health Organization is officially that fire department. But one of the things that happened early on in the pandemic was its virtual collapse, its marginalization, in part because countries that are signatories to the World Health Organization, majority of countries have never paid their dues. Uh, they've left the WHO totally underfunded, so it's become dependent on uh, big pharmaceutical companies, the Chinese and American contributions, and the Gates found, uh, Foundation. And uh, it can't alienate those uh, uh, donors, which makes it in some sense politically uh, uh, captive uh, to these specific interests. I should also point out, if, if you don't mind, uh, that the biggest single institutional collapse that's occurred, continuing a process of erosion and fragmentation that began with the uh, 2008 crisis and then in 2010 with the destruction of your own country's uh, economy. The European Union, of course, has a, uh, by treaty, you control your own health systems, but you have a mutual aid agreement, which all members have subscribed to, uh, that in case of emergency, to come to each other's aid. So what happened in Italy uh, in March and April, when the pandemic uh, was blazing out of control, and Italy asked for uh, the activation of this uh, emergency mechanism, what happened instead of sending uh, medical aid and supplies to Italy is France closed its borders and hoarded its supplies. Likewise, other members uh, of, of the EU. So the question of what the EU is these days, other than a collection agency for uh, European banks, when it's incapable of coordinating uh, through the EU, uh, a response to the pandemic, and it's a failure can with its uh, uh, inability uh, to adopt a humane and rational and EU-wide policy on immigration. I mean, I know you mentioned the war games earlier. That uh, for our listeners that don't know about this, you have a, a big a big part of your book, the monster at our door and the monster enters. Uh, is about how essentially uh, the preparedness for uh, future pandemics became a part of the war on terror 
uh, if I'm interpreting your writings right. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about how this worked, how this happened? Well, it was a, a battle within successive uh, administrations. Um, the Bush administration uh, panicked over this anthrax attack that followed uh, the attack on the World Trade Centers. Now, this was a one-man affair, uh, a disgruntled former em employee of the government who sent anthrax around. But it created a government panic, and some good people, um, scientists who thought that the country was uh, totally underestimating uh, the threat of uh, new epidemics or, or pandemics, went along with this to redefine um, biological threat as a national security interest. And ultimately, this diverted a lot of the research money, which was expanded, but it diverted it to uh, potential bioweapons, to things like anthrax and smallpox. Uh, uh, to some extent, the Obama administration reversed this, but then under Trump, uh, uh, when he appointed John Bolton, uh, one of the most hawkish foreign policy people uh, on the the right of American politics, is he dismantled a pandemic, uh, a strategic planning group in our National Security Council focused on pandemics. It basically was uh, an executive body set up to react immediately to pandemic. He dismantled it got rid of all of its members, and redefined the purpose of uh, such planning uh, to focus almost exclusively on uh, bioweapons. And this also became uh, a very profitable interaction between the Trump administration and private, ph private pharmaceutical firms. Uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the United States, this is a former head of the drug giant Pfizer, uh, their American operations. The administration is full of people with uh, ties, some of them probably corrupt, to the drug industry. So billions were spent uh, on things, again, like smallpox and anthrax, the threat of which remains uh, you know, very minor as compared to uh, the threat of emerging diseases like avian flu and coronaviruses. And, and did you see any chance of uh, the landscape of the pharmaceutical industry changing uh, at some point? So, is this maybe could this maybe work as a sign that big pharma maybe needs to break up? Well, you have to look at what big pharma actually is. It still portrays itself as the industry which develops the the new drugs, the antivirals and antibacterials, vaccines that guarantee our public health. That's not really true uh, anymore. Uh, Big Pharma spends a lot more money on advertising than it does on uh, research and development. 
it has utterly failed to develop new generation antibiotics to deal with the antibiotic resistant uh, strains that annually kill uh, in this country almost 100,000 people a year die because of antibiotic resistant infections that they pick up in hospitals and so on. So the way that it works is that big pharma, at least in this country, are mainly rentiers. If you look at the way that vaccines are developed right now, a lot of the research, and in some cases most of the research, is generated in public universities. Smaller firms develop uh, uh, trial vaccines or, or uh antivirals. And then the federal government gives a uh, billion dollars, for instance, to each of the uh, uh, vaccine uh, programs uh, currently based in, in the United States. And the pharmaceutical companies get to keep all the profit, despite the fact that their vaccines and products are the uh, result of public research and uh, public financing. So their actual role has changed from, uh, you know, the cutting-edge research to that of, uh, of defending patents and advertising cures for things that they find profitable, like sexual dysfunction and old men my age rather than the lifeline medicines, tropical medicines, antivirals, and so on that we uh, uh, desperately need. So they've become in some ways a fetter on the development and application of the current revolutions that are going on in biological design and, and biotechnology. As we've seen, uh, vaccine development has occurred with an exceptional rapidity over the last year, testament to scientific uh, advances that are occurring. But I would argue that big pharma <clears throat> and in countries like the United States, private medicine in general, uh, are fetters on the translation of a biotechnological uh, revolution into public health for the world's population. So the, I, I would like to read the sentence from your book. Uh, uh, you wrote, Reagan era medical priorities were cancer and heart disease, middle class health issues with broad electoral resonance rather than infectious disease or community based medicine. I would like you to elaborate a bit on this distinction if you can. The middle class well, health issues and the more popular ones. This is a almost 150-year-old uh, uh, debate. But at the beginning of the 20th century, the American army uh, doctors and researchers who within a few years were, were funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and after they left the military hired by the Rockefeller Foundation conducted campaigns against yellow fever, against uh, 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 malaria, and other diseases. Yeah, militarized campaigns that depended on 
quarantining populations, but above all, the search for a magic bullet, uh, a vaccine or a public health measure that dealt with disease without dealing with the social conditions in which the disease was able to extract such a high toll in human lives of poverty and so on. But there was a different model at the same time uh, developed originally by the uh, uh, revolutionary veteran of, of the revolution of 1848, Rudolf Virchow, in, in Germany, that thought that the priority was not so much the, the virus or the bacteria, but building up health capacity, raising uh, income, and implementing reforms to create a healthier population. Because the American model, the Rockefeller model, was only treating uh, and only directed at the uh, <clears throat> microbe or its vectors, you know, mosquitoes and so on. It wasn't building health capacity. And the alternative model called itself social medicine and was particularly popular and well-developed by left-wing doctors in South America. For instance, Salvador Allende, uh, who was briefly Minister of Health in a popular front government in 1938-39 in Chile, wrote several books about social medicine, counterposing it to uh, uh, the Rockefeller model. And this debate continued uh, within the World, World Health Organization, which had advocates of both uh, approaches. Uh, the Russians originally boycotted the WHO for understandable reasons, the Korean War. But when they uh, rejoined, they became uh, powerful supporters of the social medicine uh, approach. And I think it was in 1978 that the uh, Soviet bloc and third world countries united in a conference in Alma-Ata uh, and uh, uh, Kazakhstan, which adopted a famous declaration that declared that good health was a basic and universal human uh, uh, right. Since then, uh, there's there's been an increasing retreat uh, from this definition and from the model of, of, of social medicine. And so many countries are too dependent on, for instance, uh, American aid, as was West Africa during the uh, last Ebola outbreak, aid that perpetuates the military model of um, the early 20th century of disease campaigns, but not building up uh, capacity. Social medicine advocates like Salvador Allende thought that the most single important thing you could do to improve health and fight infectious disease was increase incomes. And in so many countries, that's actually a question of land uh, reform. So public health became an integral part of the program of the left in, uh, 
South America, as it did to some extent in European social democracy. this actually since uh, there are distinctions on how a pandemic strikes and that's the whole the, the core idea of social medicine um, this summer we saw the the protests uh, that followed the killing of George Floyd um, was the fact that uh, black and brown communities hurt more that uh, played into the protests absolutely uh, because they have the worst health conditions and the most pre-existing Uh, conditions uh, in the American population, which is a direct result of uh, uh, low wages, of crowded housing uh, conditions, uh, 
the fiscal crisis of public health agencies and public health hospitals. In 2008, this country lost 60,000 public health jobs. I'm not talking about nurses here or doctors. I'm talking about employees of county and state public health departments, the people who monitor disease, conduct vaccinations, uh, advise schools and local government. They've never been uh, replaced. And although this country pays grotesquely more for medicine than um, any other high-income uh, country in, in, in the world, there are, you know, big areas in the United States and enormously underserved by hospitals and, and medical care. And low-wage workers, people of color who are stuck in the low-wage economy, don't go to the doctor uh, 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 regularly. Uh, they wait until there's an emergency. And, of course, Obamacare, which had many failings, above all the fact that it still kept private insurance companies at the center of uh, paying for uh, medicine. But it nonetheless uh, uh, allowed 20 million people to have some kind of health insurance in this country. 10 million people lost their health insurance in May uh, and June as a result of unemployment. That number will increase uh, again. And the Biden, of course, chose to run against uh, universal single-payer health care as advocated by Sanders, and which all polls have shown to be supported by almost 70 percent of the American uh, uh, population. He's now in a position, if the Republicans retain control of the American Senate, as everyone expects them to, where uh, he won't even be able to make the modifications in Obamacare that he promised during uh, the campaign. So this leaves uh, poor uh, Americans, low-income Americans, and people who are falling out of the middle class uh, with even more precarious uh, uh, position in terms of being able to afford medicine and hospitalization. Rural hospitals are closing all over the country. Uh, and this is creating a, an emergency. It's one reason why uh, the pandemic right now is burning through Republican areas, rural areas, and small small towns. Uh, at one point, the little state of North Dakota is solidly Republican, uh, was having the highest death rate uh, from COVID and anywhere uh, in the world. Although I must point out, they still voted for Trump at the end of the day. <laughs> now, uh, now it's funny to mention this. When we're having this interview, uh, Trump has finally conceded, or seems to have conceded in the elections, because you never know. Uh, so, four years later, what was Trump? How did he come to be president, and what can we make of it? Well, the usual explanation is that he was swept into office by huge wave of white blue-collar uh, dissatisfaction with the Obama administration, with the, with the black president. In fact, 
he won the presidency because of the underperformance of Clinton relative to Obama and the fact that he secured the support of the Christian right by basically giving to them uh, the Republican platform to write. And he's faithfully followed out those commitments. Uh, the biggest single issue for Republicans in 2016 was control of the Supreme Court, which now they have. Uh, and the far it's not just a conservative Supreme Court. It's a far-right majority on the Supreme Court that will remain there for uh, a generation or so. But the real surprise wasn't that he won the election, but that he took over and turned the Republican Party into a personality cult. Nobody expected that. For one thing, during the primary campaign in 2016, Trump uh, had enraged the other candidates. He, for instance, said that uh, Ted Cruz, the uh, Cuban-American senator from uh, Texas, that his father maybe had something to do with the assassination of uh, of Kennedy, and he was making, you know, he was caricaturing and in, insulting uh, all these guys, and repudiating the Bush administration. So he had this huge spectrum of enemies in the Republican Party, and everyone expected that with him in the White House, he would be besieged by other Republicans. Uh, would continue to control these parts of the agenda. Instead, he carried out a night of the long knives and purged uh, moderates, most famously uh, uh, his attack on um, John McCain, uh, the Reaganite senator from Arizona, uh, who saved Obamacare by one vote, uh, in the Senate. And his weapon in, in purging and taking control of the party was his huge popularity at the base of the party and the fact that he had a, his own donor class, uh, billionaire contributors, and they're an interesting group because if you go back 40 years, when Reagan came to power, he came to power on the basis of a right-wing middle-class uprising against school busing for integration and, uh, and taxes. But it was allied with one of the most important and powerful attacks on labor in the 20th century, the business roundtable representing Fortune 500 corporations, uh, which, because of international competition, uh, their aim was to destroy uh, national union uh, contracts, basically to evict labor from its seat in the macro economy and to, if not to unionize, radically reduce the power of unions. So this was classical big business. Trump's uh, donor class is completely different. Uh, they're not in New York or Boston, or Chicago. They're in Omaha, Sheboygan, uh, Grand Rapids, uh, Tulsa, 
you know, medium-sized cities. And very few of them uh, have gained their wealth through the productive uh, economy. They represent uh, private equity. They represent real estate development. They represent uh, small smaller uh, family-owned oil firms, and all kinds of strange service industries, ranging from the the Prince, uh, uh, Eric Prince, who's the brother of Betsy uh, DeVos, his secretary of uh, education. Prince founded Blackwater, notorious for its its massacres and murders uh, in Iraq or or elsewhere. Other key donors to Trump include the long-term nursing home uh, uh, chain, the largest in the country, where the first uh, outbreak of COVID occurred and killed 45 people in the nursing home because there was no infection control, it was understaffed, and it's burnt through the whole system, uh, killing hundreds of people. Another backer runs uh, is a user. Uh, he runs uh, uh, payday loans, where uh, he'll lend you a hundred dollars, but next payday you have to pay him a hundred and thirty. Can't pay it. He'll continue to give your money until you're you're immersed in debt. Classical usury. And I, he's think, used to- I, I think Flip- that used to be called the loan sark, if I'm not mistaken. I think that used to be called a loan sark. In the old time. Yes, yes, but now loan sharks on uh, a corporate level. And as the uh, Marxist economist Robert Brenner always points out uh, in talking about all this, is what you have is, is, is an economy of predation. And it's all about using political power to establish new claims to already created wealth. It has no role in the productive economy or development of technology at all. And the disconnection between the productive economy, finance capital in general, but also these, uh, what I call lumpen billionaire class, is of course expressed in, in, in the most incredible way in the fact that today the stock market uh, rose above 30,000 uh, its highest lever, level ever in history. While 10 million Americans are newly fallen into poverty and job losses are rapidly uh, increasing, this is a different pol- political economy <laughs> than people my age uh, 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 grew up in. It's an economy that manufactures claims and uh, patents, monopolies, on uh, products and technologies uh, that are developed elsewhere. Uh, You have the entire social media based on essentially mining people's private information uh, and turning it into uh, new forms of, 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 of capital. I think that we're headed into a period, if not of depression, of uh, exacerbated stagnation in the economy 
for the foreseeable future. And the ability of the Biden administration to uh, uh, deal with this is extremely limited by its the weakness of its power in Congress. And a Republican Senate under its current leader, Mitch O'Connell, who's the most ruthless and effective Senate leader since Lyndon Baines Johnson, would be able to prevent, for instance, past passage of a big stimulus bill after the inauguration at the end of, uh, of, of, of January. They basically have the power to prevent uh, passage or implementation of any of the kinds of reforms or stimuluses to the economy uh, that uh, Biden and the Democrats uh, advocate. And what does the left wing of the Democratic Party, which is rising with Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, fit into all this? Uh, is it over or is it, could, it be, could it actually claim the leadership of the party in future elections? Now, the social roots of the left are unprecedentedly broad and, and deep, uh, particularly amongst people under 30, where every national poll shows the majority has a, a favorable attitude towards socialism, however socialism is defined, then toward capitalism. The kind of material basis of the Sanders campaign was the broad, sweeping, endless attack on civil rights and 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 liberal uh, 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 civil liberties against the gains of the civil rights revolution and uh, other equal rights crusades, combined with the fact that a whole generation of college graduates, particularly those who are first-time college graduates who come from immigrant or working-class families find themselves excluded from any kind of economic security or high-wage position in the economy. They end up working for Uber or uh, Starbucks. And this is millions of, 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 of young people. And what's so striking is amongst the under-30s, the millennials and I still had two kids in high school. Uh, is they want root and branch change. They know that nothing else will change uh, a future that appears to them to have been looted in advance uh, by conservatives, Republicans, and even uh, even Democrats. And this is what provided the momentum for uh, 70 years, six years, 70 years after social democracy had built social uh, and socialist part, communist parties had achieved social contracts in Europe and the establishment of some socioeconomic rights. Suddenly this has become an issue in the United States. Now the problem that progressives face, leftists face, is we're faced with economic conditions almost as extreme as those in the 1930s. How do you uh, ally these kind of social democratic uh, demands with the kind of demands and solutions 
that the uh, uh, the economy uh, uh, creates a need for. Uh, I mean, low-wage working-class people in this country have just been, you know, it's been catastrophic what's what's been happening, and it probably will only grow worse over the next uh, uh, year or two. So the United States is exceptional, not because Trump's in power, but because suddenly it has a mass left rooted in um, material conditions and in uh, degree, unparalleled degree of social consciousness and also uh, alliances between young people of color and young, younger white people. The problem is they have very little room to maneuver within the Democratic Party. If the Democrats, in fact, had had a landslide and had won a big majority, it would have given more space for the left to put pressure on campaign uh, for basically the demands raised by Sanders and Warren. But now that the moderates have lost space because they don't control the Senate and because the Supreme Court will rule against almost any kind of substantial uh, 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 social reform, the need is truly to go back to the workplaces, back to the streets, back to the community, and build fighting uh, uh, social movements, because further electoral pro progress um, is in so many ways blocked, and also because elections create energy and hope for very brief periods. What you want to do is ensure the continuity of activism by building organizations of organizers, particularly ones that are capable of providing uh, life life roles and subsistence to uh, poor young people, uh, poor working uh, 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 people. So we're in a strange era that has aspects of the 1930s, but also because of the huge demand for uh, new civil rights in the form of, of universal health care and so on uh, is a strangely belated attempt to uh, catch up with what's happened uh, in the rest of the world generations ago. That's what seems strange to me. I mean, your two, your two last books, uh, Old Gods, New Enigmas, and then Set the Night on Fire, uh, are both very different from City of Quartz or late Victorian Holocausts. They seem like to, uh, like they are meant to, uh, to court, to, uh, to actually push for political action, in a sense. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, my books um, are not written largely for academics. They're above all directed to uh, to young activists. For instance, with my friend John Wiener and I wrote this long 800-page book on L.A. in the 60s. And we wrote it because we believe that the kind of battles that were being fought back in the 1960s by young blacks and uh, Chicanos in Los Angeles and by the anti-war movement 
many of these battles who continue to be fought today. The conditions uh, still exist. So we thought it was valuable to uh, write a movement history, one that wasn't centered on the celebrities of, of the anti-war movement of the Black Panthers, but centered on the, you know, the ordinary uh, p- people who led these these fights and how they strategized uh, to bring about uh, social and uh, change and racial justice, the forces that uh, uh, opposed them. Uh, I was actually influenced years and years ago. I, I uh, was invited to speak at IG Metall in Germany, uh, the largest metal workers union in the world. And uh, they showed me the summer school they run, where their shop stewards, their militants, go to the summer school, and they basically play war games. They refight German history from the left. What would you do in 1918 or 19, uh, uh, you know, uh, 32? And in a sense, our history was a kind of war game for younger people to play uh, in the hope that it might be helpful for them since they're fighting on uh, similar terrains today, particularly in things like schools. The problems of the schools uh, are not much different uh, than they were back in 1965. Uh, the idea is to, I mean, I see myself less as a writer, historian, intellectual, and more like a toolmaker trying to create uh, books that are useful uh, to people in struggle. <laughs> I'll have to ask you one last question somewhat briefly because we're almost running out of time um, uh, what was it that ended that radicalism of the 60s was it just repression in Los Angeles the movement faced extraordinary uh, repression repression that also uh, ended up internally dividing organizations and uh, uh, creating internal violence uh, on the left. But above all, it was the coordination of the courts, the district attorney, the Los Angeles Police Department, and the sheriffs, with the FBI hovering above them, um, that destroyed organizations such as the Black Panther Party uh, in Los Angeles. But that wasn't the only uh, problem. Uh, an even greater problem was the mobilization of right-wing white voters in California from the 60s through the 70s against civil rights, against school integration, housing integration, their support for the suppression of student movements and the black and Chicano uh, communities. And And talking about repression, we're not just talking about people uh, uh, being tied up in courts for endless periods, being jailed, or in some cases even murdered. But repression that's so formidable, the movement resources are devoted to fighting the repression and defending uh, uh, members of the movement instead of being focused on the main enemies, the people who actually 
hold uh, uh, power in the region, the city, the country. People like uh, bankers, uh, LA's uh, 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 private elites. We were so harassed by the police that uh, it made us almost blind to uh, the right-wing forces around us, and it diverted us from uh, the, what should be the true opponents of, uh, of movements uh, in the 60s. But as we point out at the end of the book and the conclusion, although the movements in large part were uh, defeated and even submerged by the white backlash that continued through uh, the 1970s, it planted thousands of seeds. Uh, it is astonishing how many younger uh, labor organizers, community activists in L.A. are the granddaughters or grandchildren, sons and daughters of those uh, 60s uh, activists. So you can't just measure it by the defeat in terms of the goals of, of, of uh, organizations and movement in this period, but it created traditions and, and a culture of struggle uh, in the community. And, of course, your country is an example where that kind of historical memory and tradition continues to... Uh, 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 nurture and support uh, struggles in, in, in the present. And sometimes in the United States, you may have rich labor histories or radical histories, but the, the connections are cut. They don't have any living presence. Uh, our argument is the 60s, uh, you know, continued uh, through... Uh, you know, through radical families, radical uh, 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 teachers, continue to provide inspiration. And in that sense, wasn't defeated at all. <laughs> And that nice thought, Mike Davis, thank you for joining us at the Archipelago. Okay. My pleasure. Nigerian Chamber Commerce Award on the mantelpiece Would pass the kill but can't reach Won't move, don't care Slow, weak, old news, new scares Cold feet, hot shoe, electric chair, hair yeah.